Amen. Good to be with you in the house of the Lord as God's people, singing his praises and praying to him and hearing his word. Uh, let me say again, I'm Pastor T, one of the pastors here at Anacostia River Church. And on behalf of the church family, I want to say welcome again to folks who are visiting with us and uh, joining with us in worship. We are, we're glad that you're here. Uh, I understand that Jeremy messed up my saying the last time he preached. He forgot it. So let me, let me get it right now. It's not that we don't take ourselves too lightly. <laughs> it's that we don't take ourselves too seriously. But we do take the gospel of Jesus Christ seriously. And what we very much want you to do is to feel the, the comfort and casualness and warmth of family as you worship with us. And we very much want you to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and the difference that it makes for us. And so we want to welcome you again this morning. If you came in after we gave out welcome cards and you're visiting with us for the first time, if you wouldn't mind just raising your hand, uh, we're going to have someone bring you a welcome card. We'd ask you to complete that for us so we can get to know you a little bit. And after the service, to, to stay back and let us meet you face to face and to get to know you that way uh, as well. So any, other, any first time visitors that didn't get a welcome card? Okay, we've got a few over here. And on the side here. And then also, if you're visiting with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, uh, raise your hands. We would love for you to follow along with us in the Bible. Um, that's going to be the key thing this morning is what thus saith the Lord. And so we would delight for you to give your attention to that. So if you don't have a Bible and need a Bible this morning, raise your hand. We could bring you one. Anybody? Okay. Praise God. There's one over here. Amen. Well, let me say a brief word of prayer for us as we go to God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we do confess that you are wonderful. You are merciful. You're the only Savior. You're precious to us, our Redeemer and our friend. You stick closer to us than our brothers and sisters do. You are faithful to your word. You never fail. You rescue the souls of men. And so we give you praise. I mean, even this morning, oh Lord, we long very much to, to know your presence, to know your, your power with us. We long very much to have our hearts filled with the hope that you give. Some of us indeed have lost our way in hopelessness, in discouragement, in despair. Some of us have been swallowed up in anger and impatience. Some have been hurt very deeply. You're the counselor, the comforter, the keeper. Counsel us by your word this morning. Comfort us by your promise. Keep us by your spirit, we pray. Speak to us in your word. Your word is life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Boy meets girl. Already you're smiling. <laughs> it's the oldest story, one of the oldest stories in, in humanity, isn't it? This story of boy meets girl. You know how it goes, whether you were reading Sleeping Beauty or Snow White or, or what have you. There's this princess locked away in a castle in a tower just pining her days away, wondering when her Prince Charming will come. Then he comes on his white steed in gleaming armor, and he slays the dragon, and he defeats the evil witch, and, and he goes and rescues the girl. And the story ends with, and they lived what? Happily ever after. Yeah, from childhood, we're told that story, aren't we? And those stories embody so much hope. They embody so much vision. They embody so much that's good. They, they celebrate the honest. They celebrate the pure. Uh, they celebrate possibility. They celebrate patience. They celebrate, we presume, marriage. Happily ever after. And they have a way of sort of drawing up out of us those same desires, don't they? And we have our modern versions of those fairy tales. We have our, our sitcoms and we have our, our dramas. We have our, our movies, which tell the same story, boy meets girl. It's a little bit updated. They're, they're out somewhere, perhaps at a dinner party or perhaps at, at some function for work, and he sees her across the room. And their eyes somehow make their way to each other through the crowd. 
And they look away only to look again. And they find themselves floating across the dance room floor (laughs) until they find each other and embrace. Boy meets girl. Oldest story in the world. Except so much of it is not true to real life. It's hard for boy to meet girl and for girl to meet boy. And happily ever after isn't as simple as ending the line of the story that way, is it? Happily ever after takes a whole lot of work. takes a whole lot of understanding. And ever after just seems like sometimes it just ain't going to (laughs) come. Boy meets girl. It is interesting that really from uh, the sort of dawn of time, marriage has been under assault. It's been attacked. It's been challenged. It's been distorted. Even down to today, we have various ways in which marriage is redefined, twisted, corrupted, differing forms than what is original to creation or celebrated. And so it's no surprise then that really Christians, from from the time that they began to write creeds, had to sort of define marriage as a way of protecting it from the drifts of culture and, and even from the romanticism that sweeps us away. They had to set down in writing, this is what marriage is and this is what marriage is not. So as we come this morning to chapter 25 of our statement of faith, which is on marriage, I hope that we recognize that we're not coming to a new topic. We're not coming with novel ideas. We're not making things up. And we're not the first ones to think about this. We've had to think about this throughout Christian history. And and it's so important that God calls us to think about it really from the opening chapters of human history. In Genesis chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. We want to consider the first boy meets girl story. We want to think about that first couple, Adam and Eve, who started it all. And we want to, as we see this marriage, this first marriage, we want to see what God means for us to understand about marriage itself. And to draw from this story whatever instruction he would have for us in whatever situation we find ourselves, married, single, divorced, that God would speak to us about this institution. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. This is God's holy word. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But... For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. For a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. As we think about this text this morning, I want us to hang our thoughts on three points. If you're taking notes this morning, this is hopefully the outline we will follow. Number one, the problem. The problem. Humanity is given two jobs that mankind or men cannot complete by themselves. That's the problem. Humanity is given two jobs by God that men, males of the species, cannot complete by themselves. We'll see that in verse 18. Number two, the solution. The solution. So God found it necessary to create women to help men complete the jobs he'd given humanity. Verses 19 to 23. And number three, the partnership. 
Marriage joins one man and one woman to fulfill God's calling for humanity. Verses 24 and 25. The problem, the solution, the partnership. Number one, the problem. Humanity is given two jobs that men by themselves cannot complete. See that in verse 18 of chapter 2? Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. If you know the opening chapters of Genesis, you know in chapters 1 and 2 up until this point, uh, we've told a six-day creation uh, of the world. And you'll know that after each day, after everything that God made, God looked at it, the Bible tells us, over and over again and said, it is good. Genesis chapter 2 tells the story of God preparing the Garden of Eden and placing Adam in the garden. And he's got Adam in the garden. He's given Adam a task. And and now he's looking at Adam and he's saying, it's not good that man should be alone. But why? Well, it's because the two jobs that God gave humankind back in Genesis chapter 1 are in fact too large a job for men the males of the species, to, to complete by themselves. So look back in Genesis 1, verse 26. If you're new to the Bibles, when you hear me say chapter 1, that's the big number on the page. And if you hear me say verse, that's a small number. Genesis 1, big number, verse 26. Here God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That's the first job, to manage creation. God creates humanity as vice regents, as, as shepherds, as stewards, to, to have dominion. That is, to have a, a caring rule over all creation. Birds of the air, fish of the sea, livestock, everything that creeps on the earth. And so all of mankind has this calling to take God's creation and to care for it. And that's no small thing. And this is what should make every Christian a a biblical environmentalist, the the care for nature and what God has made, because that's the the most basic job God has given us as, as stewards of his creation. And it's really remarkable. That God should take one among his creatures and give them rule over the work of his hands. This is why the psalmist really is in all of this. You, you may you write this down and look at it later. Psalm 8, verses 3 to 8. You remember what the psalmist says there? When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man? that you care for him. Verse 5 in that passage, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 6, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the seas. The Bible is telling us what should be our reaction to these simple words in Genesis 1.26. What is man? And you are mindful of us. When I look on the vastness of your heavens, the sun, the moons, the stars, when I consider the complexity of your creation, birds and animals, fish and trees, when I, when I see how the universe, how the heavens and the earth declare your glory, God, what is it that you should think of me and make me to have dominion over this? There's an awe that is supposed to be in our reading of Genesis 1.26. This first job, that we should manage creation on God's behalf. There's a second job that God gives us as well. Look down just two verses later, Genesis 1, verse 28. God has created man and woman and has blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We've already seen that part about have dominion over the fish of the sea and so on. But that other job is in the first half of that verse. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It was never God's intention that Adam should be alone. That he should be the only human being 
or that the male species should be the only part of the human being that, that subdues the earth and, and fills it and, and cares for it. That's, that's too big a task for men. And so now we see the problem. When we come to Genesis 2, verse 18, we see why God says it is not good that man should be alone because these two tasks require partner, require helper. To put it another way, man is incompetent to do all God has called him to do without help. And so God looks at him and says, it's not good. We cannot multiply without women, brothers, right? (laughs) We can't multiply without women. And judging by the way some of us look when we leave the house in the mornings, we can't manage without women either. The males of the species are inadequate and incapable of fulfilling God's will for the world. We need women to do what God desires us to do. Now, how do, we, how do we think about this? Well, this means that most of us will ordinarily desire and need to marry. And marriage is a good thing. And it means most of us men need to simply and gladly agree with God, it is not good for us to be alone. Now, why, why would we say that? Well, isn't it often the case that men think they're just fine without women? And then often the case that men think that they are God's gift to women? Uh-huh, the ladies are with me now. Isn't that often the case? And don't the fairy tales get it backwards at precisely this point? It's not that women were in a tower locked away, pining away for men to come. It's that God looked at men and said, Rascal, you need not be alone. It's not good for you to be alone. If anybody in this original story is pining away and waiting for their princess charming, it's man, not woman. And yet in our culture, we get it twisted. Where men have this sense that that they're the gift and men have this sense that they're the thing of great value and men have this sense playing sometimes on the loneliness of women that they can kind of have their way out of that sense, don't they? It's sinful to think that way, brothers. It's a sinful perversion of God's order here to think of ourselves as as gift to women and think of ourselves as rightly using the advantage of malehood to, to sort of feed our own desires. And so we need to be confronted right away with this idea that it is not good for us to be alone. And ordinarily, most men and most women, not all men, not all women, but most men, most women will desire marriage and need to marry, and that will be a good thing. And let me say, I know that women fall for the same kinds of distorted thinking as well. The idea that I can, I don't need a man. Here's how my mama used to say it. She said, I can do bad all by myself. <laughs> and the idea that, you know, men are sort of ancillary and unnecessary. Well, we can't draw that conclusion from this text either. The difference is I think women are very often challenged in their thinking that way in the culture. Where men tend to get away with it. Right? And I think the text screams for us to say, no, hold on. It is just as manly to recognize our need for women in marriage. Now, if, if, if as a, a guy, you're right now gritting your teeth, feeling a little angry or feeling a little embarrassed or feeling a little argumentative right now, your beef is not with me. <laughs> it's with God who looks at us in Genesis 2, verse 18, and says, it is not good that we should be alone. You disagree with him? If he's right, and he is, it means that we have to think about how we steward our singleness, doesn't it? We need to think about how long we're single. We have to think about how we move intentionally toward that state that is good in God's sight, namely marriage. Now, a few of us, Some of us will not feel a desire to be married or will freely choose the gift of singleness. I hope you heard that read as as Matt read through 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where Paul has this great concern that uh, those in the church there were burning in passion and not controlling themselves and so entering into presumably sinful relationships or sinful activity. And Paul says, listen, it's better to marry than to burn. That, that one needs to exercise self-control. As our statement of faith puts it, one of the purposes for marriage is protection, protection from immorality. 
But Paul goes on to say some things there about singleness being, being a gift and singleness being, in that sense, good. So you may remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 to 8. You can write this down and look at it later, or you can turn there with me if you will. Where Paul writes, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, verse 7. I wish that all were as I myself am, meaning single. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. And remember what Paul says a little bit later in the chapter uh, where he says that the reason for remaining single, if one can choose it and exercise self-control, is so that we might live in undivided devotion to God. The married man or woman has troubles, right? So you single people, when you see Pastor T and Christy walk in, we're looking all fly and suave and happy. You know, what you need to learn to think of, okay, there goes Mr. and Mrs. Trouble right there. <laughs> they, they, they have cares, for not only how they serve the Lord, but cares for how they, how they serve each other. And so their devotion in that sense is, is divided. There is, a, there is a kind of pressure, there is a kind of trouble that comes along with marriage, right? It's not all roses. It is work. And Paul says, I would spare you this if you have this gift. I don't want you wrongly thinking that you must be married if God has given you self-control and a desire to remain single. And I think Paul is in some ways uh, kind of reflecting the Lord Jesus' own teachings, right? So you can, if you like, turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. In that context, Jesus is approached by religious leaders of his day, and they're trying to ask him a trick question. They ask him about divorce. And they say to him that Moses has basically given people permission to, to be divorced. And Jesus, thinking all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, the passage that we're looking at, Jesus explains something that's very vital. He tells me that it wasn't that way in the beginning. But then he comes down to verses 11 and 12, and he says this with regard to singleness. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it is given. Verse 12, for they are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and they are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and they are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. That eunuch there is a kind of euphemism for, for singleness and celibacy. Those who uh, have, have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom's sake. They refrain from marriage, refrain from the conjugal rights of marriage in order to serve the kingdom. But as Jesus' last words there kind of presume that not everybody can receive this, right? I know some of you are thinking right now, I don't receive that, I rebuke that. <laughs> you don't have this gift then, right? But there are some who do, and we want to encourage them in the proper use of that gift. And even as we encourage marriage and encourage this solution that God is going to give Adam, we don't want to, in the wrong ways, discourage those who are enjoying their singleness and living in undivided devotion to the Lord and living a chaste life before the Lord. That's good. So in either case, here are some questions for you. Number one, are you pursuing what is good in relationships, as you pursue God's calling to be a steward of his creation? Are your relationships good? Are you pursuing what's good in those relationships? Number two, which would help you most, singleness or marriage? That calling that God has put upon your life to, to go out into the world and to subdue it and to fill it with his glory? Are you better off single? Or better off married? Which would help you most? Number three. Should I pray about marriage and singleness? Or should I leave it to others to pray about marriage and singleness? Well, why do I raise that? Because sometimes what we call prayer is simply anxiety before God. We're simply hand-wringing over and over before God about something that we really haven't left to him. And it may be that your heart, under the label of prayer, is really just exercising anxiety before God. And it may be that the, the more godly thing for you to do to enjoy your singleness or to enjoy your spouse is to leave it to others to pray for you, to trust that other godly brothers and sisters who love you and want God's best for you are, in fact, interceding for you. Meanwhile, you bring all your thoughts captive to Christ and go on in the state that he's called you in at this point. So should I pray about it 
or should I let others pray? The problem. It's not good for man to be alone because he can't do all that God has called him to. Point number two, the solution. God found it necessary to create women to help men complete the calling he placed on. We see that there in verses, the end of verse 18 down to verse 23. Let me read those verses for us again. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Three things here to see in this solution. Number one, woman is uniquely made to fit man, to fit man. That's the emphasis there. You see it at the end of verse 18, I will make him a helper fit for him. And then you see it at the end of verse 20, after all of this naming, we're told, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. God's sort of plan here is to make someone who is complementary to Adam, who who goes together with Adam, who who locks up with Adam like like the little Lego blocks we used to play with as kids, that there is to be a, a unique fit. Now, notice, ladies, I said God made woman to fit man, not fix man. F-I-T, not F-I-X, to fit man. And this is the purpose, I think, of this long naming ceremony. You see there in verses 19 and 20, God keeps bringing the animals to Adam, and, and Adam is naming all the animals, all the birds, all the beasts, all the livestock. Now, now, pause for a moment and ask yourself, how long do you think that took? Must have been at this for a while. And, and why does God in between this promise to make a helper suitable for Adam and before the delivery of this promise in verses 21 and 23, why does God insert this naming ceremony? Well, it is in one part to reflect the fact that Adam has dominion over the creation. I don't think that is fundamentally the purpose. I think he's just slowly weeding out every alternative. And I think that because at the end of verse 18, we have the notion of fit. And at the end of verse 20, we have the notion of fit. And in between is this naming ceremony where all the animals are paraded by. And Adam names it. And Adam thinks, nope, (laughs) nope, nope, nope. But the woman is uniquely made by God, designed with omniscient hands to fit man to go together with him, to to complement him in ways that no other creature in all of creation is able to do. How many of you have liked putting together puzzles or maybe when you're growing up with kids, you put together puzzles and I don't know if you had this experience of putting together a puzzle. I think most people have. You you dump all the pieces out and and you're getting the pieces together and you make pretty good progress, but there's that one piece. And you're just looking around, you're looking around, you just can't find that one piece. You start mashing some pieces hard, you know, (laughs) And that's what our culture is doing with marriage right now. It's mashing some pieces hard. But there's only one piece that fits. When you find that piece, it's eureka, isn't it? It's like, there it is, the fit. And this is what Adam is and Eve is in, in marriage, this design fit between one man and one woman. Now, notice he didn't make Adam several women. Only one woman fits to one man. So our statement of faith, you'll see it on page 13 of your bulletin. Let's read that first paragraph together because it makes this point, it makes this point plain. And this is where a definition of, of marriage begins. Bear with me. Read this together. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. It is not lawful for any man to have more than one wife nor for any woman to have more than one husband at one and the same time. This is how God designed it right here in Genesis chapter 2. 
Having more than one wife is polygamy. More than one husband is polyandry. We don't see that in the history of the world's cultures much, but it exists. And God makes it really plain, no, at one time, one man and one woman. Because he made woman uniquely to fit man. But notice the second thing. He made woman uniquely from man. He made woman uniquely from man. See that verses 21 to 23, 22? So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So woman shares in, in this sort of identity, in this creation with man, being made from the, from the rib of man. She's, she's a partner to him, and, and the rib perhaps suggests that symbolically, out of Adam's side, one, one like him. And we're taught this in the New Testament too. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8 says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Now, that, that is not an argument for inequality and the genders. So 1 Corinthians 7, if you go down to 11 and 12, says this, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. You've never met a man who didn't come through a woman. And so the existence of men is dependent upon women in the same way that in the original creation, Eve is made from Adam. So this is not in any way teaching superiority or inferiority. No, this is just simply teaching the the order of creation. And and from that order, we do get gender roles, but we have different roles, but equal standing, equal being before God. A woman is uniquely made from man. We're not independent of each other, but we do see this order in creation. A third thing to observe in the text Woman was uniquely made to fit man. Woman is uniquely made from man. Number three, woman is uniquely made for man. Verse, 20, uh, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 11 says this, Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now we get that also in Genesis 2 verse 23, but we get it in the language of poetry. You see there, God has brought Eve to Adam, and, and Adam looks at Eve, and verse 23, he breaks out in this kind of song, in his poem. Notice there, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. As I was preparing for this, this morning's sermon, that little phrase, at last, caught my eye freshly. You know how you read the Bible sometimes, you read passages over and over again, sometimes something stands out at you? Just, just that, that language of at last. Adam's been waiting a long time. He's named a whole lot of animals. You know, he's worked his way down to this time, and he's, and he's looked now at Eve, and, and it seems to him, at last. He starts singing. Some of you will know the name, Etta James. At last, my love has come along. <laughs> my lonely days are over. And life is like a song. <laughs> Adam erupts in poetry. I got some jazz lovers in here somewhere. And really, this whole section is, is an ode to women. The whole section has the flavor of poetry and, and celebration and, and delight. It's, it's a great celebration of the feminine species. There's a sense in which we're to read this section in wonder and awe and celebration of women. I mean, from the assessment that it is not good for man to be alone, down to the elaborate naming where we see the uniqueness of woman, to the the pulling of a rib from Adam's side to this song that Adam breaks out in in verse 23, we're meant to to be dazzled by what we're being told here. Because in verse 18, we're being told of the strength of women. They come and they help complete the calling and the mission. And in verses 19 and 20, we're being told of the uniqueness of women, as we've already said. In verses 21 to 23, how marvelous women are, as, as Adam stands back in awe and marvels. And in verse 24, how precious women are God's gift to men. And Adam is discovering the truth of Proverbs 18:22 long before it was written. And he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains the favor of God the Lord. 
And you realize there's no equivalent verse in the Bible that I'm aware of that says the same thing about men for women? There's no way in the Bible that says, he who finds a husband finds a good thing and obtains the blessing of the Lord. Yeah, it's humbling, isn't it? <laughs> but here we're being told, and in so many other places, who can find a virtuous woman? Her price is far above rubies. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains the favor of the Lord. And we're being told in the Proverbs that a, that a good woman is an oil and ointment to, to her husband. A bad woman is a, is, a, is a gnawing of his bones, right? But, but a good wife, she's to be praised. She's to be treasured. She's to be delighted in. Women are exquisite creatures. And think about how many things are made possible in this text because God creates and gifts women or Eve to Adam. Women make it possible for men to be good in God's sight, to, to be, as it were, equipped and competent for the calling that he's placed upon mankind. W women make it possible for companionship, a helper suitable for him, as some translations put it, or a helper fit for him. Women make mission possible. They, they are helpers in this great calling that God has given us. And women make survival possible. They, they with us, are fruitful and multiply. And a man who knows all this about a woman, well, that rascal sings and writes poetry like Adam, doesn't he? He breaks out in song, and he gives her his name. So how do, how do we apply this? Men, I've said it already, we, we are not God's gift to women. We don't want to get it backwards. Women are God's gift to us and appreciating that goes a long way in correcting a lot of wrong worldly thinking that men have about women. It goes a long way in correcting how we treat women when we mistreat them. It goes a long way in helping us to appreciate the good gift that God gives us in marriage when he gives it to us. And husbands, when we think about what women make possible, boy, shouldn't this Shouldn't this help us to delight in our wives, to cherish our wives, and make companionship possible, and make calling possible, they, they, make, they make children possible, and in God's sight, we're, we're good, we're completed, we're prepared to do what he has called us to do when we've been joined together with a wife. I mean, brothers, consider your wives. They are God's gift to you. Just reading this on Monday morning and thinking about this devotionally and praying and just giving fresh love for my own wife, fresh appreciation for my own wife, my best friend, a helper in everything, always an encourager, always praying for me. Nothing that I've done of any significance has been done in my own strength. It's been in the strength of God and the blessing of my wife. And she's fine, too. <laughs> this, this just text calls us to write poetry for our wives, to delight over them. And single men, here's a, here's a reason to get off the fence if you're on the fence. Here's, here's a reason to, to sort of get in the game. If, you, if you're not among those single men who are called to marriage, praise God. That means you're called, you think, to marriage. What we waiting on? This is a good life. This is a blessed life. I'm not encouraging you to rush. I'm not encouraging you to be foolish. I'm not encouraging you to, to do worldly things in the way of dating. But I am encouraging you to, to take maybe a different posture. You know, maybe you've been a bit passive. Maybe you've been wait, waiting to be struck on the head. And maybe you want this experience that Adam has right here. Let me just remind you that this is the first woman Adam's ever seen. You've seen a lot of women. <laughs> All right. So it might not be good to wait for Adam's experience here, right? You know, we, it may not be good to let Hollywood set the sort of tune in your head. You, you're waiting for the harps to play and, and for the stars to twinkle. You know, that could be a concussion. You know, don't, don't <laughs> you know, there are better ways to proceed, brothers, you know. But I, I hope that God puts a hook in the heart of the men of Anacostia and draws us toward this. This is a beautiful life, and this is, this is, this is a blessed life. 
There's blessing that attends marriage. God pronounces that benediction over marriage when he says, be fruitful and multiply. This is good in God's sight. And if there's something in our own hearts that, that suggests to us this is not good, we should talk about that, brothers. We should work on that. There, there may be good, thoughtful reason for you to move slower than some other guy, some things to work on. Praise God, but let's work on it. And there may be reason for you to step up a bit compared to some other guy. Praise God, let's step up. Right? We, we want to give ourselves to pursuing the things that God calls blessed. So, brothers, choose a woman, a woman. Pursue her first in prayer. Pursue her second in counsel from godly men. And it'd be really useful to talk to some godly older men. The catch your age that ain't married to, they, they don't know how to do this. <laughs> they haven't proven themselves yet. They're good brothers. They're good brothers, but they're missing some stuff that could be helpful to you. Choose a, a godly older man. Pursue it first in prayer, second in counsel, and then pursue the sister. Take the risk. Step out there. Declare your interest. If she says no, you won't die. <laughs> it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. I would say, show of hands, brother, how many of us have been turned down? But I would, <laughs> I'll, I'll put us on blast. Like, what, brother? Yeah, I'll put us on blast. <laughs> it's okay. And we pray some more. So you, you get the point. I'll, I'll stop there. I'll stop there. Women are a gift from God. They're a solution to the problem God diagnoses in verse 18. Let's come to the third point, the partnership. That marriage joins one man and one woman to fulfill God's calling for humanity. We see that there in verses 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Uh, in these two verses, we're going to sort of talk about two practices that go into forming marriage. And then we want to talk about two pictures that we're giving uh, in these two verses. The first practice there is in verse 23, leaving and cleaving and becoming one. You see it there? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The remarkable thing about this verse to me is you realize that Adam and Eve don't have any children. That, that he's anticipating God here in this word as being fairly prophetic. Before there is such a thing as children, those children are now being instructed to leave a man, to leave father and mother, and cleave to wife. It's just very clear that God's intent is that this is how he's going to organize human society in the, in the sort of contracting of these covenants. This is covenant language, the leaving, the cleaving, the binding together as one. And that's what marriage does. It takes two people who otherwise were unrelated, and it makes of those two people unrelated one new family. Independent from their, their prior families, now a unit of their own. And this is how strong marriage is meant to be. It's meant to supersede the, the bonds of blood and kinship in such a way that it forms now a new kinship, a new family, a new, a new unit. And this language of leaving and cleaving and, and, and contracting this covenant, this language implies a certain treatment, a special treatment of the wives. The husband leaves his father and his mother. It leaves what's familiar. He establishes his own home with his wife. And in that covenant, he treats the wife as if she were his own body. And they are one flesh. A couple of biblical texts on that if you would like. Turn with me to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2, where God is now speaking to Israel because they have, they have fallen in a number of ways and sinned against God. And, and one of these ways has to do with their marriages and how they treat or mistreat one another in marriage. So, so look at Malachi 2, beginning in verse 13. God says there, and this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hands. So here you got people worshiping God, crying and broken, supposedly. They, they want to know why God isn't showing them favor, verse 14. But you say, why does he not? And God answers, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, 
though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. When a man and a woman stand together before any assembly and take those vows and become husband and wife, it's not merely the man and the woman swearing these things, but God bears witness to that union. God becomes a, a legal party in that union, and God has a, he has a testimony about our marriages. He has a testimony about Israel's marriages, and he says here, Israel, married to the women of their youth, were faithless to their companions. Verse 15 tells us why he made marriage. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in spirit and do not be faithless. Or in the New Testament, we're being told that how we treat our wives affects our communion with God. Just as we just saw in Malachi chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Remember it says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. I mean, many people get hung up there. What's this weaker vessel mean? <laughs> the striking part to me is the next half of the sentence. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Brothers, how we treat our wives has an effect on our relationship with God. It will hinder our prayers if we do not live with our wives with understanding. And it certainly will receive God's disapproval if we have been faithless to our wives. In the language of Malachi chapter 2, if we have been so faithless with our wives as to put them away, as to divorce them, he says, those are the garments of violence. We, we do harm to ourselves. We do harm to our wives. We do harm to our families. We do harm to our communities when we don't steward well this basic social unit that God has established for society. And so when we look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, we're getting it stated in the positive that a man should leave and cleave and hold fast to his wife and become one. It's a picture of human flourishing. It's a picture of the good life. But it's also a picture of something else. Notice there uh, in verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. That's the language of openness and intimacy. Marriage is this place where we're all supposed to be able to be ourselves, to let our hair down, as it were, to be transparent and to be vulnerable with the one who is in covenant commitment with us, to embrace one another. It's where Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 13, 4, it's where the marriage bed is pure and undefiled. It's this place where we delight in each other. Whereas the proverb says to husbands, delight in the wife of your youth. Let her, let her satisfy you. And this is a place, again, a, a picture, again, of flourishing. And, and so it becomes so much hardness, doesn't it? When as a married couple, you face so much misunderstanding and so much opposition outside your home, and then come home to find the same. It's not as God would have it. God would have our marriages and our homes be safe places, places of nakedness and unashamedness, places of intimacy and realness. And he would have us if we're married and we're struggling it with that, and, and, our, and our homes are, are places of, of chronic disagreement and friction. He'd have us get help. He'd have us reach out to a brother or sister in the Lord, a couple in the Lord, the pastors of the church, and say, just, we need to talk. As fellow travelers and sojourners, we, we need help. We need to work this through, that we might return to this picture of nakedness and unashamedness as husband and wife. So those are two practices, excuse me, leave and cleave and become one. And in that oneness, you know, enjoy this nakedness and unashamedness. This is, this is part of the blessing that God has for us in marriage. But now this, these two verses also give us two pictures. One we've already said, a, a picture of human flourishing. It's no accident that anywhere you go in the world where marriage culture is strong, that you tend to have uh, fewer incidences of, of almost every kind of social ill. 
uh, even in this country, when you meet the, the marriage research, many of you will know that I'm a, I'm a former social scientist, and so I can tell you how strange it is that there's ever a research consensus in the social science world. You get that with some frequency in the physical sciences. But in, in sociology and psychology, you almost never get everybody agreeing on the same outcome. Except this one thing. That when a man and a woman marry and children are raised by their parents in marriage, everybody does better. Everybody does better. The man works and is more fruitful. Because she's like, man, you got to get a job. <laughs> The wife is better protected and cared for. Children are less likely to be raised in poverty. They're more likely to graduate high school. They're more likely to delay uh, out-of-wedlock pregnancy themselves. Uh, they're more likely to, the family's more likely to own homes, own cars, almost on every measure imaginable. When it's as God describes it in Genesis 2, everybody does better. And one of the reasons that we have, one of, those of you will know our, our five M's, these are the five things that we're kind of focused on as a church. The M's, the message of the gospel, mercy on the block, the maturing of men, women, and families, uh, the multiplication of leaders and churches and missions to the end of the world. And one of the reasons we have that third one in there, the maturing of men, women, and families, is because of the truth of Genesis 2. Uh, we, when we first started out, I called that third M just marriage, but but I realized that someone gave me some feedback that some of our single brothers and sisters would feel left out by that. It just it kind of signaled, it, it didn't signal everything we wanted to signal. So, so we have this little bit more cumbersome, the maturing of men, women, and children, and families. But what does that maturing look like? It looks normally like the vision of, of, of Genesis 2. It looks a lot like men and women growing and joining and producing children that they raise in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And, and we want to be serious about that, not just for our personal happiness. We want to be serious about that because our marriages, number two, picture the gospel itself. They demonstrate before the world Christ's love for the church. So Paul, when he's writing his letter to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, quotes these very verses, verse uh, 20, 24, that a man shall leave his his father and mother, and cleave to a wife, and the two of them shall become one flesh. Then he tells us in the last verse of Ephesians 5 that, that that's not just about marriage, but that's a picture of how Christ the bridegroom has loved his bride, the church. That, that this, this mutuality, this oneness, this nakedness and unashamedness isn't just about how we're doing in our homes. It is, in fact, a theatrical display. It's a moving picture of the gospel itself, of Christ's sacrifice for his bride and his bride's love for her Savior, that that's on display in our marriages. And so we want to care deeply about marriage as a gospel issue, as a picture of the gospel as a way of telling the truth about what it looks like to be in relationship with Jesus. It looks like having someone sacrifice themselves for you. And it looks like in that sacrifice being beautified and sanctified and honoring the one who sacrificed. Because that's the way it is with Christ and the bride he's purchased. And if you're here this morning and you're, you're thinking about Christianity or this all sounds new to you, let me just sort of back up a little bit and, and tell you how this came to be. Because between Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5, there's this great thing that God has done for us. We have, we have sinned in a million ways against God. Sometimes our, our marriages are the places where our sins are most multiplied. Right? And, and God sees it. And God's offended by it. In fact, God's angry at it. Because having made us and being our maker, God is also our owner, and he has called us now to live for him, to obey him, and to worship him alone, and to, and to complete this mission of filling the earth with his glory. But when we sin against him, we deny his glory. We reject his mission. We go our own way, and God will judge us if we die opposing him. That judgment will be an eternal hell, eternal suffering, where the anger of God is righteously, righteously poured out against sinners. But God, who is rich in love and rich in mercy, sent his son into the world, Jesus Christ, who was born of a woman, was born of a virgin, who, who came in and took upon himself our flesh. And he lived in our place. 
He obeyed God perfectly in every way in which we fail. He fulfilled all God's law so that he could provide us righteousness before God. And having lived a perfectly righteous life, he did something else for us. He died for us. He, he took our place in judgment. He was crucified on the cross in Calvary. And on that cross, the worst thing is not his physical suffering. The most important thing is not his bleeding and the whipping and the horror that that is. The most important thing and the worst thing is God turns to him and pours out his wrath, his judgment, his anger for all the sins of the world on his son. The suffering was wrath. The substitute for us was Jesus. So that all of God's anger is satisfied in Jesus' sacrifice. So that now anyone who confesses their sins to God and repents of their sin, that means turns away from their sin, to, turns their back on living a life of sin, and puts their trust in Christ, the Bible promises this wonderful news that everyone who does that is forgiven of all of their sins, past, present, future. And everyone who does that is not only forgiven of their sins, past, present, and future, but in that moment is declared once and for all righteous before God. Not because of what they did, but because of what Christ Jesus has done. And everyone who puts their hope in Christ now has also this promise that on that great day, which Matt talked about earlier, when Christ shall come and raise the dead from the grave and gather his people who are alive, we too will be raised in resurrected life. We will be raised in glorified bodies and we'll forever be with Christ in his kingdom where there is only righteousness and peace and love and joy. Where there's no more brokenness, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more failure, but where we will be the bride of Christ, joined together spiritually with our groom to forever enjoy his love. That's offered to you freely, my friend. There's nothing you pay for that. There's no work you have to do to earn that. God says, receive it, believe it, trust this message. Trust in Jesus, and you will be saved. Young, old, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, male, female, trust in Jesus, and you will be saved. Beloved, our marriages should point to this truth, and our marriages should be working out this truth imperfectly but steadily as we live for that day when we shall be with the one who loves us best. Christ our Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that you love us enough to tell us the truth about ourselves. When we can be surrounded with so many false friends who only give us platitudes and nice words and who would not love us enough to speak plainly the truth in love, Oh, Father, we, we see your love in your word when you speak to us. What is true and what is right, what is correcting, and what is ultimately life-changing. So we thank you for your word, which tells us that it's not good for man to be alone. And we thank you for your word, which corrects any sense that we might have, that we as men are, are God's gift to women, or any sense that we might have as women, that we are called to fix men. There's so many broken ways in which the world thinks about love and marriage. And so we thank you for your word, which helps us and instructs us and guides us. And Lord, in whatever situation we're in this morning, whatever, whatever state we're in at this moment in our calling, whether we are single or married or divorced or remarried or whatever, or widowed, whatever is the calling. Lord, give us grace. Give us the comfort of your grace and the comfort of your word and the comfort of your spirit that we might live by faith in our present circumstance. And I pray for those who hope for a different circumstance, whether it is to go from singleness to marriage or whether it is to be reconciled with a, 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 an erring spouse, um, whatever it is, to be remarried after widowhood, Lord, I pray that you would let their hearts trust in you with the future, 
that you would, Lord, ease their mind and ease their hearts from any anxiety, any doubt, any unbelief, and let them go on in wholehearted devotion to you, trusting you and trusting your goodness to provide in every circumstance. Remind them that you never fail. And remind them, Lord, that in many situations in the Scripture, you have answered the pleas and prayers of many who were beyond hope, like Abraham and Sarah. Lord, we praise you for that. We pray that you might do it again. And Father, we thank you, Lord, for your gospel. We thank you, Lord, for that good news which tells us that there is a perfect love. When all of the human loves have failed, Lord, when all of the human relationships have ceased to be, there is the perfect love and the unending relationship that we may have with you through faith in your Son. And I pray this morning that you might grant someone the gift of faith this morning, to trust in you and so live with you forever, and that you might keep us, all of us who already believe, until that glorious day when we will be called to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We will sit with you in your kingdom and enjoy that banquet and bask in your love. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.